Good morning, everyone. How many are here this morning? How many aren't sure? Yes, are you here? I need my water. Um, I can tell by this basket that the vast majority of you did not get an apple when you came in. How many want an apple? There you go. Whoa, whoa, uh, interception there. All right, Gath. All right, come on. This is for Herman. Herman, you got it? Boom. All right. You want a green one? Got a ways away, Kendra. All right, here we go. You might want to watch out those in between. Oh, sweet. All right. Israel. Whoa. Oh, good catch, man. That's good. Wow, all right. This is fun. <laughs> all right, Janet Hines. Here, here he goes. Oh, good. All right. All right, Sarah. Oh, that, that one was low. Here you go. Here you go. Oh, she got it. She got it. Oh, bruise. Bruise. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, Merrily. There, the front row's easy. All right. <clears throat> Apples. There we go. We'll get to this in a minute. But I want to welcome you. I'm Cameron, as Adam shared. And we're going to take a life-giving look at the seven deadly sins. You know, for about 16 centuries, that's a long time, 1,600 years, the church has taught about um, the seven deadly sins as, uh, as one of their, you know, it was just an emphasis. It was often taught on. Uh, it was integrated really into the, um, oops, it just fell. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it was really integrated into the culture and the, the terminology, the vocabulary of the church, uh, into the art of the church. And, and so these, these sins uh, <clears throat> were identified. And I thought that, you know, for 16 centuries, the church has been talking about these, these seven primary areas of sin. <clears throat> but in our day, you know, they're, they're really not mentioned at all. In fact, uh, uh, um, you know, they're thought of as old-fashioned or archaic. Now, what a perfect strategy of the enemy to take something <clears throat> that is very powerful and simply by making it sound old-fashioned or archaic, we dismiss it. And I just, and, and, you know, that in and of itself made me want to teach on this topic. Uh, in addition, I just had... I got that as I was thinking about this topic, but something <clears throat> was early back as in the spring that I first kind of got the inclination of wanting to do a series um, on on these sins. In fact, I didn't even know what the seven deadly sins were. I had to Google it. <laughs> I found one of one of them, the word I'd never heard of before. Then I knew it was a problem. Like I didn't even know what they are, and I didn't even understand one of them. I thought, wow, this has got fallen so far out of our vocabulary, out of our culture, even out of Christianity, uh, or at least our, our branch of Christianity, that this is something we ought to give some uh, attention to. And then while I was up in Toronto for a school, I was just in a room uh, by myself, and there's there bookshelves in all the rooms, and you can just tell they're just random books that people donated. And I look up and I find this book, and it says, Disordered Loves, Healing the Seven Deadly Sins. I was literally that far away from it. I was lying on a couch, and I looked up, and it was like, wow. So I took it. I borrowed it. (laughs) (laughs) 
borrowing? <laughs> I'm sure it's okay with them. <laughs> so anyway, um, now this is the list of sins uh, is not uh, biblical in the sense that there's not a list in the Bible of these seven sins as being the seven deadly sins. Uh, there are certain lists. There's the Ten Commandments. You may remember those. Uh, <clears throat> there's the seven things God hates. Uh, and that's in the book of Proverbs, and I did a series on that a few years ago. But um, this is just something that has been developed over time um, uh, by the church and identifying uh, these as, as significant areas. And we'll get into the definition in a little bit. But, you know, sin itself has been marginalized in our culture and our society and our vocabulary. Even Christians get uncomfortable identifying or discussing the idea of sin, <clears throat> and we want to minimize it. And, uh, you know, what's a sin? What's just a weakness? What's a, you know, a medical condition? <clears throat> but Jesus said in John 8:34, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. All right. So sin leads you into bondage. All right. Slavery. Uh, <clears throat> that's at the core of sin is slavery or bondage. And Jesus came to set us free. You know, if the sin can convince, or if the enemy can convince us that a sin is not our enemy, or, or is not our master, if the, if the devil can come in and, and take a sin and the change our understanding of that sin from being a, a, a master, someone, something that brings us into bondage, and instead kind of sell us on the idea that this sin is really our friend, or maybe just our weakness, you know, <clears throat> then we're not likely to walk in the freedom that Christ offers. And so the strategy of the enemy is to minimize sin or to make us friendly with sin. And then that makes it easier for him uh, or easier for us, maybe, to get caught up and to get bound in sin. Sin is wrong. And just, just some ideas about sin before we get into the particular sins. The sin is wrong because it is an act or a belief or a personality or character trait that is contrary to the person and character of God. And it's essential you understand this, this, this truth, okay? It's not wrong just because God says it's wrong. It's not even wrong just because it's destructive and all sins are destructive to you or others. Primary, at the root issue, of what makes sin sin is that it's contrary to the person of God. It is it is in uh, uh, it's a contradiction to His nature. All right, and so and 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 that's why it makes it so bad. It it makes it destructive, even if it may be temporarily pleasurable. The Bible itself says that there's a temporary pleasure in sin, but sin is acts, beliefs. <clears throat> traits that are contrary to the nature of God. Uh, the wrongness of sin, is that's, that's what makes it wrong. Um, <clears throat> the reason we must be free from sin is so that we can live in God's presence. All right? And, but if you're a slave to sin or if you have sin in your life, you're not going to be comfortable in God's presence. All right? It's not that God's not going to be comfortable. He's doing right, you know, pretty well with or without you. All right. It's about you being comfortable in his presence. But if there's something in your life that's contrary to him, whenever you get close to God, that's going to you're going to feel that. All right. 
And that needs to be removed from us so that we can be fully in His presence, that we can enjoy the immensity of God's goodness. All right, this, this book, <clears throat> out of this book, William Stafford, by the way, uh, and you can get it. There's going to be a link on our website if you want to buy it. You can use on Amazon for 94 cents. Wow. <clears throat> Sin is the refusal of human beings to let God be God. It is the decision to create a false center for life, an idol to which we give our ultimate loyalty. Uh, and so that's, that's at its issue, is that it becomes a false center, and the center of our life should be God. But anything that competes with God, uh, God's role in our life, that becomes more important to us, pleasing it or pleasing ourselves by this act, action or belief, uh, 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 becomes more important than pleasing God, then it's become an idol, regardless of what it is. All right? <clears throat> so... A modern translation maybe of the seven deadly sins, or that term could be the seven terminal illnesses, spiritual illnesses. You know, if you want something a little more, seven terminal spiritual illnesses. It refers to sins that break down, uh, sins or weaknesses uh, or forces within individuals or communities that tend to deliver them over to the old order of sin and death. Now, whenever you bring up the idea of deadly sins, then most people say, well, are there sins that aren't deadly? And rather than getting into that whole idea, in in one sense, all sins are deadly. But there are certain areas of sin that um, over the centuries, the church has recognized that these are are especially serious. These these tend to uh, uh, draw people into a place where it becomes deadly, where, where they're life dominating, okay, uh, and uh, to the point that you could lose your relationship with God if you allow them to overtake your life, all right? And so they're kind of general categories. Um, <clears throat> in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20, uh, it says, when people escape, talking about Christians, all right, how many are Christians? All right. It says, when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that means they're Christian, right? And then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. I actually know some teachers, some people I know, actually friends with some of them, that, that actually teach that Christians can't sin. I think that's a contradiction to that scripture. I'm still their friends, but I think they're a little wrong there. Because the Bible says that when you, when you come into a relationship with Jesus and you get set free, but then you get tangled up and enslaved again, you're actually worse off than before. And so <clears throat> we need to be careful not to get entangled by these sins. And so I just want to talk about these, these seven areas over the next uh, few weeks to give us a familiarity with them. But also, we need to understand that all sin is a corruption of something that's good. And this is where I want to take a life-giving look. I don't want to just stand up here and say, this is an area where people sin and don't you feel bad about it. To me, that doesn't do any good. But I want to unearth what is good. Because all sin is a corruption of something that's good. And so if we can remove the corruption, then we can find and enjoy... And really participate in the good that God intends us to get from it. Alright, so, are you ready for the first sin? 
Come on! Are you excited about this series? I've been waiting six months to preach this series. <laughs> it's taken me six months to figure out a way to teach it without coming across, hopefully, I think I'm not going to come across just in condemnation, alright? I want to to teach it in a life-giving way. So I'm excited. So the first one is gluttony! Yay! (laughs) Ah, look at that. Yeah, to lighten it up, we're we're using fun images. (laughs) Let's get Disney about this. Disney-esque. So, what is gluttony? Now, this one I did understand. I did understand the word of gluttony. Uh, At least I understood the word a little bit. But basically, overindulgence, overconsumption of anything to the point of waste. That's simply what it is. Overindulgence, overconsumption of anything to the point of waste. Thomas Aquinas, famous uh, theologian, said eating, he defined it this way, eating too much, too soon, too expensively, too eagerly, it's like burning, too daintily, or too wildly, coarse or crude. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, in the New Living Translation says, I have told you often before and say it again with tears in my eyes. This is Paul saying, he's communicating this with tears. He says that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Ooh, that's really bad. They are headed for destruction. What could they possibly be doing? Their God is their appetite. Ooh, that's the first thing. Second thing, they brag about shameful things. And third thing, they think only about this life on earth. Those three character traits identify someone that's an enemy of the cross of Christ. This takes appetite to a very serious level. Okay, First Peter four three says, "You have had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties." and their terrible worship of idols. Now, easily we can understand where it's religiously wrong or in a relationship with God is wrong to worship an idol. Well, let's just take that out. The Scripture is still true if it just was their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties. All right? If you just take out the wild parties, it's still true. They're feasting and drunkenness. And if you take out drunkenness, just they're feasting. Are you getting me? All of these are characteristics. It's not when you have them all together. But all of them are different aspects of an overindulgence, <clears throat> an excess to the point of waste. Uh, the guy who wrote this book says, Gluttony is the, a reversal of creation, the spoiling and corruption of bread and wine and all that goes with them. Listen, gluttony is eating and drinking that excludes God. And if you, if you remember anything... That's the one sentence I want you to remember. I will. Gluttony is <clears throat> gluttony is eating or drinking that excludes God. Eating or drinking, consumption of food or drink apart from God. Period. If it's apart from God, that that actually was a new idea to me. 
I'm like, wow, <clears throat> that's kind of intense. And you think, well, can gluttony really be such a deadly sin? I mean, is it that serious? And I thought of Genesis chapter 3, 6. Let's talk about Eve in the garden. And the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit. Everybody grabbed their apple. And you don't understand, it wasn't necessarily an apple. We don't know what the fruit was, other than it was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, everybody say food, food, that it was pleasant to the eye, oh, that looks nice, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Perhaps food is more spiritual than we think. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're familiar with the, there's a medical term, actually has to do with infectious disease, um, that... Uh, an animal or insect <clears throat> that transmits a disease but is not affected by the disease itself is called a vector. How many are familiar with a vector? Okay. So the mosquito is the vector for yeah, anybody in nursing <clears throat> doctors. You know, a mosquito is a, a vector for what? Malaria. Malaria. What else? West Nile virus right here in Michigan. You struggle with that and that uh, encephalitis uh, Thing. <clears throat> so, but the mosquito itself is healthy. You know, it's just carrying around this germ that infects other people. And in one sense, the mosquito is innocent. All right, or the ticks that transmit the Lyme disease. Eating food is the original vector of sin. Think about it. It was through an act like that that all of sin, destruction, and evil that we talked about the last two weeks came into the world. Huh! Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, the enemy still uses food as a vector for sin. Do you think? It worked really good that first time. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. Let's, let's take it to the New Testament. <clears throat> when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards He was what? You better believe it. <clears throat> when the tempter came to Him, He said, this is the first temptation Jesus encountered out in the desert. He says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Food. To a hungry person, <clears throat> Jesus answered and said to him, uh, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he says bread, he's not just talking about you know, bread as in a loaf of bread, but food. All right? It's a common term for things that give us sustenance. It was a very temptation, the first temptation that Jesus encountered by the enemy after he was baptized and spent time in the wilderness. And the enemy used this temptation to challenge Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, if you're really God, if you're the Son of God, if you're God's Son, well, just take that stone until you're hungry. It's a legitimate need. My goodness, you haven't eaten for 40 days. Certainly God knows you're, you're faithful. Go ahead. 
Prove. Prove. Use your power to prove your identity. Change that rock. Doesn't that kind of look like a loaf of bread? <laughs> How many have fasted? Everything looks like food when you're fasting. <laughs> uh, the same thing the enemy said in the garden to Eve and Adam. He says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. You'll be like God. Come on. It's, it was a challenge of their identity. It's who they were. They weren't quite enough. Take it into your own hands to uh, create your identity. All right? <clears throat> and Adam and Eve ate the fruit and knew evil, but they were unable. They became slaves to it. Jesus responded to that same temptation and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He kept food in its proper place, subordinate to God's will. All right, And in doing so, this is the good part, uh, he, 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 he redeemed the vector. Okay, <clears throat> He overcame that temptation. And so it, food in and of itself is not sin. All right? It's only sin when it's out of its proper place, when it's eaten without God taken into consideration. Oh, this is a good quote. Starvation might threaten Jesus' bodily life. This is from the book. But even so, he knew, Jesus knew that his life and identity depended simply on God. To be son of God was more a matter of God's word than of bread than of what he ate. He would not make his father prove that word to be true by trying out his own powers on some stones. That would not be faithful dependence, but rather a self-defining act of controlling power. All right? That would not be faithful dependence, but rather a self-defining act of controlling power. He would be asserting himself as God's rival, not God's son. But Jesus, who was who he was by his father's continuous begetting, his life was shaped by his father's call to his father's mission. So it was in that relationship as a son to a father, complete dependence on the father uh, heart of God, really, that Jesus found his identity. He did not have to identify himself or find identity through what he ate. All right. Jesus triumphed over that temptation. The enemy went on to the next one. All right. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Gluttony says, you, you can live by bread alone. In fact, you need food. You know, whatever the food may be. You need that. And so that's the, that's, that's, I'm trying to define what gluttony is. Because gluttony is not just overeating. It's, it's a little deeper than that. It's, a, it's much more subtle than that. It's much more tricky. All right. <clears throat> um, it's defined by saying you're dependent on food for your identity. All right. Or displacing uh, God or making an idol out of food. The idea that, you know, it's commonly said you are what you eat. <laughs> Maybe that's true. I mean, in one sense, in a biological sense, you are what you eat. Because whatever you eat is what is your body transforms into your physical being. Right? Now, we don't absorb stuff through the ground like a tree. Everything we are, we eat. <laughs> But in its, and the Bible says that we understand spiritual truths through natural through the natural world, and so it's true also on a spiritual level. What we consume defines us. 
uh, Adam and Eve's identity was corrupted by what they ate. And Jesus' identity was challenged in the same way He overcame it. All right? Can we say, possibly, that what we eat has at least the power or the potential to affect our identity? Who we are. All right? And gluttony simply allows what we eat or do not eat or how we eat to take a disproportionate place in our life. All right? Anorexia. anorexia I can't say it. Anorexia. Bulimia. I've seen these people. They're so skinny. I grieve when I see someone. You know, it's obvious. Extreme cases. Wow. That's gluttony. All right? Obesity or excessive attention to a diet can also be, but may not be, symptoms of gluttony. You know? You can be perfectly in shape and be a glutton. All right? And you can be overweight and not be glutton. All right? You need to break any connection there because there's other things that contribute. On the other hand, I don't believe there is a person in America that's immune to gluttony because it's a national sin. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a, we are... We, we excess in everything. Travel to another country and order something in a restaurant. They don't bring it out on a stinking platter. Okay? <laughs> it's just, people, they, when we go to a restaurant and they bring you a portion of food, I always go, my word! It's just like, this is enough for the whole family. You know, but we get so used to it. Do you realize, I looked up, <clears throat> there was 170 nations on this. I did the what's it, gross national income. Income, total income of all the nations. Out of 170 nations, Americans spend more just on diet products than 127 of those nations spend altogether on everything. Aha! We spend more money on diet products then what 127 out of 170 nations individually spend on everything. <laughs> so, regardless of how we are personally, this is, a, this is an issue that affects... And how, how just demonic of a strategy is this? To make it something we're not even allowed to talk about. Because everyone's so sensitive about it. And that we can't, but for all, for goodness sakes, you can't call it sin. Well, there's a sin that underlies some symptoms. And there are other things that can be, a, uh, you know, the cause for someone to be overweight or underweight or whatever. But obsessing about food, and the enemy can use food as a vector for this sin. And the sin is called gluttony. Okay? <clears throat> The good that, uh, you know, regardless of your weight or your BMI. <sighs> How many know what BMI stands for? There you go. <clears throat> All right. So what's the good that gluttony corrupts? Food. <laughs> Let me just whip out some scripture story. Genesis 9.3 says, Everything, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
So anything that moves, you can eat it. <laughs> I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So this is after the flood, and God says, you know, you can eat of all, you can eat animals as well as everything that grows. There's like an open banquet table, feast time, go for it. All right, it's a gift. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. This is picture of a feast and an overflowing cup. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that's an image of the kingdom of God under the reign of His Son. Then Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, heals our diseases, redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. Alright? That's equated with forgiving of iniquities. Okay? Satisfying your mouth. So, enjoying food is good. Alright? There's nothing wrong with it. It's a gift from God. But gluttony is the corruption of that gift. Psalm 104, it says, He causes the grass to grow for cattle, so they can have something to eat. Vegetation uh, for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And bread which strengthens man's heart. So these are all gifts of God. Here's another quote. It says, God has made all things and made them good. Eating and drinking are part of the shalom. And shalom, we know, is a Hebrew word that is translated peace, but it really means well-being in every aspect of life. Okay, It means richness and prosperity. And it means to have all the food you need and more. Okay, To actually have enough to delight in. In fact, part of the Old Testament law was that they would go uh, numerous times throughout the year to have a feast. So feasting in itself isn't wrong. All right, it's okay. <clears throat> Gluttony is merely a corruption of that, and a dis- put, making it the, the center of our lives rather than having it in its right place. Uh, so it's a eating and drinking are part of the shalom, the life-giving peace of God. When we eat bread and drink wine with thanks, we are caught up in God's peace and blessing. This sharing in God's blessedness is true in every part of life. When Christians offer bread and wine to God. In the Lord's Supper, they're bringing the whole cosmic order to God. <laughs> it's really true. It's, it's an amazing experience. It says, from the primal elements to their own full humanity, all caught up in the mystery of bread and food. It's really amazing how everything you can look at everything in the context of food and see how it is almost like a microcosm. You can see the dynamics of all of humanity and our relationship with God through our dependence on food. And when it's, when it's in its right place, it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Bread is a sign of the relationship with God Himself who is the real center of human life. Jesus calls Himself the bread of life. God feeds us with Himself, gives us the divine life that relationship with Him implies. Alright, food is good, it's a gift, it displays our dependence on God. Food is good in that it's one way that uh, through the Lord's Supper and communion with Him, it actually communicates His grace towards us. And I really think that it's not insignificant that the one, uh, the one ceremony that Jesus Christ instituted in the New Testament 
Right? What, what is it? Huh? Communion. What does it involve? Eating and drinking. Ah! He's redeeming that aspect of the fall. Let me tell you a secret. God's a redeemer. Everything He touches, He redeems. You need something in your life redeemed? Invite God into it. You need your relationship with food redeemed? Invite God into it. The fact that God takes eating and drinking, the vector through which sin came into the world, and uses it as a demonstration and actually act through which we can participate in the life. Jesus said, you know, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood or you have no part in me. Wow. Because Jesus is the tree of life. And so we're eating from the tree of life when we eat with Him. Alright? So communion and, and, and entering in reverses that and redeems food. Okay. <clears throat> so, hopefully we've established that gluttony is a disproportionate place allowing food and uh, what we eat or drink to have a disproportionate uh, aspect of our life or our identity based on that, not necessarily just what we eat, it may be what we don't eat. Some people find their identity in not eating certain things. Okay, And I'm not saying it's wrong to not eat certain things uh, or to have a personal conviction about what's healthy and what's not healthy. That's fine. But your identity can't be based in that. All right, <clears throat> It needs to be based in everything's a gift from God. And you're going to rejoice. And the, and the redemption really... And really the victory in having uh, freedom from being caught in the sin of gluttony is inviting God into every time you eat. Realizing the spiritual significance of the act of eating. And that the very one of the first stories in the Bible and how sin entered into the world involved eating all the way to the end when we look forward to what? The wedding feast of the bride and groom. And just say, you know what? This, God, I don't really understand this, but I, wanna, I, want you, I want you here. So when you sneak the cookie, as I do in the evening, cookies, I might add. <laughs> well, let's just start inviting God and see if that makes a difference. You know? Okay, I'm going to give you quickly three remedies for gluttony. <clears throat> and uh, I think we all can benefit. Again, it's regardless of our physical size or whatever. <clears throat> One is communion. Understanding the value of it. And I think I already talked about how important that is. But just, just participating in communion with this in mind, that it's redeeming food. you know, And, and we, we commune with God through this. Healing for the body and the promise of re- resurrection may be found in the Lord's Supper which is our deepest nutrition. Okay? Second, second remedy is fasting. I love this quote. Christian gluttons need to learn how to be hungry for God. For that reason, Christians must fast. If you don't like that, William Stafford said that. Not me, I'm just quoting him. You can be angry at him. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> we need to learn how to fast because we need to learn how to be hungry for God. And fasting is like, Powerlifting, spiritual, it's like prayer powerlifting. When you fast, when you do it right, it really does uh, enable you to break through. 
I like to say, if you want to learn how to get free from something you don't need, like a sin or an addiction or something destructive in your life that's harmful, then learn how to abstain from something you need, like food. And that gives you the strength to abstain lesser things. Does that make sense? Okay. It really empowers you. Uh, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And then he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. So he's just putting it in its proper place. The third remedy for gluttony is thanksgiving. And again, even if you're in perfect health and you never overeat, as a nation, we need to be thankful because we, are being, we have been given such abundance. And we can, we can, the remedy for it is constant thankfulness. Thankfulness reestablishes and reminds us that, we're, that food is subordinate to God. We don't live by food, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's a gift of God. It invites Him to the meal, or the snack, or the dessert, or the drink. So be conscious of His presence. Say, Lord, would you share this with me? And if He says, you know what? Why don't you put that back for now? And you learn how to do that. It'll help you spiritually. And no doubt it'll help you physically as well. Maybe God wants to say, hey, lighten up a little bit, you know, and go ahead, have another slice. Because He's a good God. He wants to give us a feast. Is that all right? Roast a whole pig. <laughs> Stuff it with sauerkraut. <laughs> oh, that was great, wasn't it? Okay, so communion, fasting, and thanksgiving. Adam's going to come up and share some announcements. <laughs>